Why do you keep being grayed out? We're not doing that here. We are active. We are going. I mean, I'm active. I'm going. <laughs> what? I don't understand. You, you know what it is? Adobe released this year's version of Audition. Mm-hmm. And every year on like the first version of the update, I don't know why I updated. I shouldn't have updated. I should have waited for like, you know, the what what is it? Uh, 14.2 instead of 14.1. Like. There's always little stuff in the first one that doesn't quite work right. Yep, yep. And I think that me easily just pushing the record button is one of those little things this time around. <laughs> and so now it just, it's it's a hassle. No! Well, we'll see, we'll see. There are, normally their, you know, first patch after the big update is around now. So we'll see. We'll figure it out. Um, What else was there, though? Maybe we don't need a pre-show. Maybe we can just go right into it. Maybe we can just go right into it. Are you, I, I know you've been waiting for this episode for so long. This this episode for me this week is is you last week. It's just, it's, oh, yeah. It's really boy. hard to condense your thoughts, isn't it? It really is. I'm all over the map. And like, I'm, I'm having generally like a chaotic week to begin with. Yeah. So Same. I don't know. My, my brain is, you know, you're going to have to focus me this week. <laughs> you know, I find that the two of us can balance each other pretty well. Even if the, even if we're both having chaotic weeks, usually the one who's having the more chaotic week, like the other one meets that level. I'm, I'm pretty good at matching energies or balancing out. So I think we can do it, Colton. I have faith in us. I believe we can do this episode. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. And welcome to the Pie Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. And today we are talking about Book 2, Chapter 7, Zuko Alone. This week, traveling without Uncle Iroh now, Zuko wanders alone into an Earth Kingdom town where he bonds with a local boy. So I hope you have all of your, like, lone gunslinger Western cowboy tropes brushed up on <laughs> for this week. I love a good Western. Like, he walks off into the sunset. It's so on the nose. This, I mean, I think I've mentioned before, so we had a horror episode, and this is now the Western episode, but I think there are a few more Westerns coming up. Maybe that's just an Earth Kingdom thing. Yeah, yeah, it is, because it's so big and sparse, and it has that, like, you know, American West feel to it. Um, I do also think that, you know, we we look at this episode and we say, oh, it's a classic Western, but there are a lot of Western tropes in samurai films mm, and a yes. lot of like similar imagery. The two genres kind of go back and forth trading ideas yes. quite a fair bit. And I think it's important to acknowledge that like, yeah, we say it's a Western because that's like our own cultural proclivities, but it's also heavily influenced by samurai cinema. That's a really good point, Colton. I hadn't thought of that before. 
So yeah, uh, our recap this week. It's uh, really this show just likes to pile it all on Zuko, doesn't it? Yeah, I really like the suffering will be your teacher, followed by a montage of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> that boy needs a nap. Just, I think I remember at the end of book one, I was like, he just needs, he just needs to rest. Like, just needs a rest. And he's not getting it. No, he's not going to get it for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. I did notice a thing with the intro music, because you've, you've clued me in. <laughs> like, I normally listen to the music, but you've clued me in specifically to, like, the title card. Yeah. Little riffs. Like last week, it starts out very Fire Nation, mm -hmm. but unlike any rendition of the Fire Nation theme we've heard so far, I don't know if you caught this. No. It shifts into the blue spirit right at the tail. Ooh. And I had to go back and listen to it a couple of times because it does all of, it does the whole thing in like the big brassy Fire Nation sound. Yeah. But the instead of going into that final interval that dun 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 yeah. it doesn't drop all the way down there it goes back up Ooh. and it's like this it's totally the opening to the blue spirit theme but nice. it's like the fire nation is slowly pivoting it's kind of draining from the from the song yeah yeah Ooh. and you still get all of that you know color and aesthetic of of the brass section mm -hmm. but the feel is totally different and the, the emotion behind it is distinct. I like how the two of us can do this of you turn me on to listening to the music and then I start listening to the music and then I notice that the title sequence music is changing each time and now you can't stop listening to the title sequence music and now you're that's going to clue me into something next book. Who knows? Oh, yeah, totally. We're just feeding <laughs> off each other. Absolutely. I have totally been tempted to like make a detailed spreadsheet of all of the intro stingers that we've had and just try to see if there's any correlation. Oh, Colton, I think that should definitely be a part of our book two retrospective. Yeah, sure. I'll say that now, but we're in chapter seven and the <laughs> retrospective is way off. It's totally way not going to regret we'll, that. <laughs> we'll figure that out. Yeah, but let's sign ourselves up for that. I mean... Actually, in our notes, we have been kind of keeping track of that for most of the episodes. Even if we don't mention it, we have been writing it. So we might have the data points already there. And again, we are in chapter seven. All right, you sold me. We'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're on to something, Colton, and I just want to follow it through. I, I think we've got something here. All right, let's run with it. Woo. caught myself with some of those things this week of like stuff that I mentioned either like really early book two mm -hmm. or sometime in book one. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but just a bunch of things really like clicked for me this episode. Mm. What was like a big thing that clicked? A big thing that clicked was I remembered again. I mean, it wasn't too long ago, but this episode is directed by Lauren McMullen. Yes. And I got so excited. Like once I started, once I saw her name on there, I got so excited to see how she forms her stories because mm -hmm. she really carried this arc of Zuko. And then, then I started thinking, I was like, okay, well now I'm kind of curious about the writer and what else she's written, mm -hmm. which is a lot, <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot. But, um, 
made me a little bit more excited to kind of connect those dots. And I could definitely, I don't know if you, I could definitely see the influences of the storm in this episode. Oh, definitely. She has a very uh, signature way of cross-cutting between time periods. Yes. And the way that she utilizes that to demonstrate like a character's inner workings and, and sense of self across time is just truly masterful. It's so fluid. And especially because I feel like when we get these flashbacks of Zuko, we're getting, you know, He's a child. So you're getting these big overarching things that a child can understand at, you know, like age seven, eight, whatever age he is there. Um, And then you see an older Zuko and you can feel you can track the progress that he has made without having to see all of the progress. You can see the before and the after. And she gives you all the clues to fill in the blanks. Yeah, yeah, it's. I think it it speaks to an understanding of the human psyche Mm -hmm. because so very frequently in the flashbacks, we have young Zuko interacting with these very basic principles. It's very straightforward. It's very simplistic. And then it cross cuts to the modern day, you know, modern day, (laughs) but it cross cuts to to now, our current story. And he's constantly put in situations where the simplistic view is challenged in one way or another and Mm -hmm. and he needs to figure out a more nuanced approach or sometimes apply those foundational concepts in a way that maybe wouldn't have been so obvious to his younger self so let's talk about some of these lessons that Zuko has learned and is still learning that's what I saw at least that these lessons that he took from his his mother Ursa um, in childhood, as much as they have stayed with him, he's still kind of developing into those lessons, if that makes sense, and navigating a world in which his mother was the only one who taught him empathy, sympathy, besides Iroh, who we now see was away for a good chunk of his childhood, mm-hmm. and the other influences of Azula and Ozai. We're telling him the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the how juxtaposition does he of Zuko and Azula in childhood. It's so much. It's just so much more than in every way than seeing that those two characters interact now. Well, I think Azula was still learning how to kind of hide her worser tendencies in a way. I mean, she's. She knows how to be manipulative even as a child. We can see the way she manipulates Zuko into playing with them and uh, how she has this charm that she can put on. But she still doesn't know exactly when to put it on yet. Because mm. she'll yeah. say things in front of her mother or in front of her parents that are not okay. She'll do things that are not okay. But she's still learning, all right, how do I, how do I get my way without having consequences? Yeah, and I, I think what really strikes me is the scene where... Zuko and Azula both learn about Lu Ten's death. 
Zuko's immediate thought is entirely for Iroh's state of mind and emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. He is all sympathy, all empathy, trying to understand, you know, what Iroh must be going through losing his losing his child, his only child. And he also shows his own his own uh, grief for losing his cousin. Yeah, yeah. And Azula's only thought is that Iroh is weak for coming home. Mm-hmm. And maybe her father will get to be the Fire Lord now. Yeah. And she doesn't know not to filter that in front of her mother. Not at all. She's like, isn't this the normal conclusion? Yeah, yeah. And it's I, I'm left this entire episode thinking that Azula simply says whatever Ozai is thinking. Mm. Ooh, interesting. Especially um, in the throne room scene when Ozai is showing her off for Azulan and Zuko is failing miserably. Like every time Azula does anything impressive or cunning or, you know, showing off, Ozai is smiling. Mm. And that smile only breaks when, from his perspective, the embarrassment that is Zuko tries to do anything. Now I'm curious, where do you think that comes from? What? That that uh, o- Ozai's feelings. Where do you think those come from? I'm just curious. As someone who hasn't read further, I, w- I want to know your thoughts. I think Ozai has that same manipulative, power-hungry desire to rule above all else that Azula has. I think he probably gets it from Sozin. I think it's super interesting how much we learn about Ozai when we don't see his face this episode. I don't think we have to see his face to learn much. I think that that one smile is enough. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that Azula presents these ideas, and then they happen. And the one time we see Azula and Ozai interacting, he seems to be in support of her. I think that's a pretty strong argument that she is speaking his mind. Mm. They are cut from the same cloth. And I think we're meant to understand that Azula is telling the story. She just doesn't know that she's telling the story of what will happen in the Fire Nation. And Zuko's just along for the ride trying (laughs) to comprehend the world crashing around him. And he says Azula always lies, but she almost doesn't. She lies to him, but not to the audience. And is this the first time we meet Ursa? We meet Zuko's mom? Because she's referenced a lot. Yeah, I think this is the first time we see her. I mean, we've we've talked about her and her connection to the Blue Spirit before, but... Maybe she was in the storm? I don't think so. No, because she was she was gone by then. Yeah, because all of the flashbacks in the storm are around the time of the Agni Kai. Yeah, no, this is her very first appearance in this in the series. So we hear all about Zuko's mom. Well, actually, I think I always kind of wondered about Zuko's mom because, you know, he was attacked by his father. Where was his mom during all of this? And we've had reference between Azula and Zuko about his mom. But now we get to meet her. She might be one of my favorite characters on the show. I love her. I love Ursa. She doesn't have a ton of screen time in the show and Mm -hmm. she doesn't have a ton of lines. But I feel like every time she speaks, it's important. And every time she's on screen, it's important. 
she is very she's soft but she's very wise and i like that she is also very strong in her belief system especially you kind of have to be if you're you know married to ozai you know i never understood that relationship do they expand on that in the oh they very much do yes in the search they explain is it satisfying yes very much so the search is the story of zuko finding his mom and uh or where she went and they start with they go a lot into her background of where she where she came from how she met ozai their relationship uh some things that happen that fill in the blanks for zuko alone and the flashbacks and where she is yeah i'm gonna have to read that (laughs) yeah yeah it's a good one i do want to talk about her her first scene with zuko because i think there's a really important really uh like blink and you'll miss it bit of zuko's inner character in that scene we we open on in the first flashback with zuko and ursa in a in a garden there are there's like a little pond and the cutest hybrid animal that (laughs) just ever existed on this show (laughs) we'll discuss that (laughs) yes we will god i love the turtle ducks um (laughs) and zuko picks up this big rock and says this is how azula feeds the turtle ducks and smashes a baby turtle duck on the head with it just chucks it just right at it and ursa just sits there and you can tell that Zuko was going for the laugh or or going for the pat on the back kind of thing. Well, he also, he shows before that that he does know how he feeds the turtle ducks. He tosses breadcrumbs to the turtle ducks at first. And then he says, want to see how Azula does it? And chucks the rock. Yeah, and goes for the violent approach. Mm-hmm. Of like, Azula's the prodigy. This has got to be the right way, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, trying to be accepted for doing what his sister does. And his mom doesn't reinforce that behavior. She just sits there stoically. Um, and it only takes a moment of of not getting the reaction he was expecting for his face to drop and him to realize, oh, I did something bad. Well, she also points out, Zuko, why did you do that? She, she does, she... Rather than just saying it's bad, she asks the question of why would you do something like that? Why would you hurt someone? Yeah. And I think that demonstrates that like he has a sense of right and wrong in a way that Azula doesn't. Mm-hmm. He he has this inner morality code, whatever, like he has a conscience. Yeah, I think I think Azula has a sense of right and wrong. She just doesn't. It, she doesn't care. It doesn't impact her as much. But when mm. we see the turtle duck get hurt, when Zuko sees the reaction of his mother, he changes. Yeah. He feels the impact of what he's done and the reactions of those that he cares about. Whereas Azula, not so much. And I think that this is, this remains a core part of who he is. Because at the top of the episode, before the first flashback, he's presented with a similar situation. He's out riding. He's hungry. He comes across a family with food. He could throw a rock at their heads and take their food from them and do more than just, you know, do it for no reason. He could sate his own hunger and he doesn't. Yeah, you're right. He's it's a sitting duck. Literally. Yeah, they're sitting ducks. They're sitting ducks. And he chooses not to. That's really interesting that you say that. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to see where he originates that that code. 
And I think he even proceeds to navigate that code throughout this episode of he is now trying to figure out, all right, who are the right people to hurt? When is the time to fight? Mm, Yeah. What what are my obligations to other people? What do we owe each other? What makes a person good? And I think what's really interesting about what makes a person good in this episode is that he can still make quote unquote, good choices of, you know, the people, the certain people that he fights, the people that he sticks up for. But the reactions to those choices are not as clear cut as he kind of needs them to be to understand if he actually did the right thing. He's still living in that gray area. So he like he chooses to stick up for the family that he chooses to stick up for the little kid. He chooses to teach him to fight. He chooses to uh you know not tell on the little kid to the bullies all all these choices that he makes but what does he quote unquote get he gets dinner from one of those choices but in the end he still walks away alone i think that a significant part of zuko's journey and something that he interacts with a bit in this episode i don't know if he learns the lesson but just you know thinking about everything we know about his journey up to this point and honestly a bit looking forward i think he needs to learn to do the right thing not because he gets something out of it but because it's the right thing he needs to do the right thing for himself uh to make himself feel better as opposed to just everyone else feel better he like, needs to choose reactions. good because it's good mm, and not just for the reactions the praise whatever it may be right and in a way he needs to return to an element of his own childhood because we see him choose good because it's good he tackles may and throws them both into the fountain because her head is on fire he he has that impulse to do the right thing it's just been ridiculed out of him it's been traumatized out of him i mean that's why he got the flame to the face from his dad yeah that that very war meeting when he crosses his father he was trying to do the right thing the honorable thing and even trying to do the honorable thing with uh with iroh and the two of them are now are now runaways from the fire nation yeah i think i think he's conflicted between the the part of him that his mother sees or saw and the part of him that his father wishes he were the part of him that azula is and i think that this episode is not only his struggling with that duality but with him starting to try to figure out which one he wants to lean into and i do think in the end he decides he makes a choice this episode whether or not he'll stick with it, whether or not it's a choice I that he's happy with. I don't know if he makes a choice this episode. I think we're going to want to talk about it at the end of the episode, but I think he does. Okay, because, all right, I want to segue into something different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not really, though. I find this episode is a huge identity crisis for Zuko. And we see it with elements of the blue spirit with, the flashbacks to who he was as a child and to who he is now. And in the end to him, uh, finally using firebending for the first time this episode at the very, very end and being called Prince Zuko and the, you know, Oh, he's actually the outcast Prince there. I find that this episode is very much a crisis of not just like you said, the moral code, 
but of identity and who he is and what his place in the world is. And he very much tries to be nobody. He tries to take himself he, he tries to, am I the blue spirit still? Am I just going to, you know, rob bullies or rob anyone? Because at one point he, you know, was robbing anybody with Iroh as the blue spirit. Am I the blue spirit? Is that who I want to be for the rest of my life? Am I the crown prince to the Fire Nation? Am I a disappointment to my family? Or can I just be a nobody just trying to make his way through town? And the moments where he kind of shines in a way is when he doesn't choose to be nobody. He chooses to share a part of himself that's important to himself with other people. So the moments that in bonds that he shares with the child, Lee, who has taken him home, when he talks about how it feels to fight with two swords and that they are, uh, it's not two swords. Think of them as one weapon. They complete each other. And that duality and that, uh, that sense of taking two things and merging them into one is an identity crisis that Zuko needs to resolve himself, that he can be his most self when he lets his guard down to do so. And when he makes the choices that he wants to make, such as giving the dagger that was gifted to him from Iroh to this boy to protect his family. There are two things in there that I want to <laughs> <laughs> that I want to play with a little bit. Go ahead. Um, and I'm going to go in the order that you brought them up. Okay. And I think the first thing is, you know, you talked about the the identity crisis of do I want to be the crown prince? Do I want to be just someone passing through? Do I want to be the blue spirit? And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because we don't see the blue spirit mask in this episode at all. But I definitely think there are times in this episode where he is the blue spirit. Yeah, I think the music definitely keys into that as well. Yeah, yeah. The music keys into it. The broadswords key into yep. it. The the role in society keys into it. Mm hmm. I think when he is acting as sort of a a protector of the downtrodden, and like mm -hmm. he's doing that through like he's not wearing the mask at that point, but yep. he kind of is. He's mentally put on the mask of, OK, I'm not being I'm not being Lee nobody who, you know, just needed a meal to get through town. I am. I have training. I'm going to use it. Yeah. He's wearing the emotional blue spirit. mask. Yes. But there's still that distance that it makes it feel like it's very much not Zuko, if that makes sense. It's not it's not the nobody that he's pretending to be. It is it's somebody. It's a different aspect of Zuko. It's a different role that he is playing in that yeah. moment. Yeah. And it's it is a role that he is playing. And he's playing a lot of different roles and deciding which one he wants to be. Yes. It's a role that he puts on when the mother comes to him and says, They took my son. He could he could have stayed in the role he was in of Oh, I don't know what to do about that. I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, trying to make my way through town. But he didn't. He said, where are who are they and where are they? And he went to, you know, for, to avenge. I think he's made an important part of the journey to that decision. But I actually know which episode I want to say he's made the decision of who he's going to be. And it's another one directed by Lauren McMullen. I mean, I think there are a couple of episodes coming up where he decides who he wants to be. And he just like he decides for a little bit. I'd say where he kind of closes this arc, at least the the moments that 
the resolution of the blue spirit in a way for me. There's a resurrection of the blue spirit at some point, but the resolution of the first is this who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. He can put on that mask later if he feels like it, but like, is this who my core personhood is? Is kind of resolved. And I, at a, at a certain point, I know which point it is for me. I, I, I know what point it is for you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I agree with you. That's great. I love it. I want to get there and see. Cool. Because I do think that I think that this episode is a point. I think he maybe goes back on this de- on the decision he makes in this episode, and then maybe he goes back a couple more times. Again, I don't feel he makes a decision at any point in this episode. I think he tries on a few roles, and I don't think he makes a decision on any of them. I think we're going to need to talk about the battle at the end somewhere in the middle because he stands up and he says, I am Zuko, son of Ursa. Like, it is, that is who he is. That is the self-affirmation that he was shying away from this entire time. But his reactions to the crowd once he says that, he backs down and, and walks away and so I don't think I don't think he's made a decision. I think he decides, all right, take off loose spirit mask, put on the Zuko, put on crown prince mask. Let's try this. But I think I think there is something in what you say of him saying son of Ursa first. And maybe that's the, the kernel of truth that he finds in this episode is his connection with his mother and how important she is to his identity but I don't know if he is able to identify himself yet. What parts are him? He can identify the parts that his mother has fostered, but not really who he wants to be. I think that he he decides in that moment that he wants to be the person that his mother saw him to be. I don't necessarily think that he's ready to fully accept the consequences of that that he's ready to fully accept what that what like society will see him as but in that moment he has decided who he wants to be he just he's he's not ready to accept the dissonance that will create at times with how the world sees him We glossed over a thing in the Lauren McMullen appreciation segment that I want to I want to swing back to. Okay. Because I pulled out two quotes from this episode that I had them. I pulled them out watching the episode on their own. And when I was prepping my notes for, for our discussion, I saw the two of them next to each other and I fell in love with them so much more as a pair. And I never would have noticed otherwise. And you're not a huge quote puller. So I'm fascinated. Yeah. But I think it really is truly masterful from like a directorial level. Because like the the writing is great. But at the same time, like the way the episode is structured, I think really hits it home for me. Um, They're both Ursa quotes. Okay. You're really loving this. Loving Ursa. Loving Ursa. This, this <laughs> view around. Like, wow. <laughs> Um, and the first quote is, that's who you are, Zuko, someone who keeps fighting, even though it's hard. Oof. She says that to him when she's consoling him for basically f- just failing in front of Azulon. Yes. In the yes. demonstration. And the very next time we see her, 
Mm-hmm. It's not the next line that she delivers, but it's in the next flashback when we see her. Mm-hmm. It's right before she leaves. She's saying goodbye to Zuko. And she says to him, Zuko, please, my love, listen to me. Everything I've done, I've done to protect you. Remember this, Zuko. No matter how things may seem to change, never forget who you are. Ooh, gave me chills. Who is he? Someone who keeps fighting even though it's hard. Ooh. Never forget you're someone who keeps fighting even though it's hard. If that is not all of Zuko in this episode (laughs) and the whole show, I don't know what is. I think it's really important to point out that she consoles Zuko by saying that he keeps fighting in front of the reigning fire lord who who he's failed in front of, in front of Azula, in front of Ozai. She says that to him in front of other people because what matters to her is to console him and not, you know, everybody else, which is, I mean, a good mom, good mom move. But she's unafraid to say it in front of some very intimidating people. Arguably the three most intimidating people in the world at that point in time. But yeah, just those those two quotes like boom, boom, one scene after the other. It just it got me. And that's where I think I really saw this episode as his identity crisis and trying to, with the flashbacks, trying to remember who he is. And I think he'll, remembering how his mother consoled him will help him get there. She's kind of his anchor to his sense of self. And it's really hard that she's gone and and he seems to have lost his sense of self. But these times where he can where he can remember his mother and what she gave him in life can really bolster his spirits to become more of who he needs to be. And I think for, I I see something similar with his identity crisis, a a little different. Um, You know, I see, like, like I said, Zuko is, he, he comes out of this identity crisis asserting who he is in one regard, and that is the son of his mother. And he does that in the middle of fighting a very powerful earthbender. It, and he was not doing well at the start of that fight, but he kept fighting even though it was hard. And then he asserts that. But I think where his journey continues after this episode is, you know, like you pointed out, society ridicules him for some of that assertion and for some of the aspects of who he is and he shies away from it and even though it's hard he doesn't keep fighting to assert who he is because you know he's he sort of unlocked this self-knowledge in one regard when it's you know a physical adversary opponent but when it's a more ephemeral societal one he's still learning that lesson I think another another point that you kind of brought up there is that this is Zuko trying to take himself out of the fight in a way. He has walked away from the Fire Nation. He has walked away from capturing the Avatar. He's walked away from Iroh. He's walked away from everyone. This is him, himself out of the fight and he keeps getting drawn back in and he's not sure he's if, if he wants to get back in there. But when he knows that he is fighting for something that is right, such as protecting this little boy and helping keep this family together when they've already faced so much hardship for losing the older brother, he's going to pick up the mantle and fight. And it's that decision that sets him forth to be able to, like you said, assert who he is. He is the person who, when this fight comes across his lap, he's gonna pick it up. And it's about choosing your battles. 
So I can't do this episode, Colton, without asking you an important question. What's that? What do you think happens to Zuko's mom? See, this seems unfair because you know what happens. I do know what happens, but this is why I want to know what you think happens. I want I want to know your thoughts. I'm torn. I'm very, very torn. Yeah. Like, why does she leave? I don't know. I have two thoughts, and I don't know which thought I like more. All right, give them to me. No wrong theories for me because there were so many theories for me over many, many years. Okay, so I... The crux of me not knowing what to think stems from how little I know about Ursa and Ozai's relationship. Gotcha, gotcha. And if that is like... I mean, it's difficult to consider Ozai in a healthy relationship, but if that relationship is like in its on its own terms, like good and like they're both, you know, invested in that relationship, then I think that Ursa going away is the punishment that Azulon was talking about, mm. where Ozai has to know the pain of loss. Um, I don't I'm not super sold on that because why is she still gone? Um, if that relationship maybe isn't great because of who knows why it's just not great to begin with. Maybe Ursa doesn't like how Ozai treats Zuko. I don't know any number of things that I can imagine because I don't really have high thoughts on Ozai as an individual like Maybe Ursa leaves, but if that's the case, why doesn't she take Zuko with her? She seems like, like, so she can't, I, I don't know. Not going to tell you, I just. Maybe Ozai sent her away. I, is, why would he do that though? There's like a lot of things that happen in that flashback all at once, which is Azula telling Zuko that dad's going to kill you. And then, you know, Ursa coming in and comforting Zuko of like, shoo, 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 I don't know what Azula's saying, you know? And then saying goodbye in the middle of the night. And then next morning, Ursa's gone. The Fire Lord's dead. Ozai's, Ozai's Fire Lord. Like, just a whole bunch of things happen at once. And we don't know. Yeah, I I think what I've currently, like, come around to as I think I can not poke too many holes in this in my own head and thinking is that I think, okay, so like Ozai kills Zulan. Like, I'm pretty sure that happened. Um, and I think he goes to Ursa after Azulan is dead. And I think Ozai wants Ursa gone for whatever reason. And I think he uses Zuko as the bartering chip there. Leave or I kill him. Yeah. And I think that's why Zuko is banished, because maybe, you know, evil as he is, Ozai made this promise and he is going to fulfill it. And so I'm not going to kill my son in the Agni Kai, but I am going to destroy his spirit and banish him on this hopeless quest that he'll never fulfill. Okay. I can't wait until you read the search. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I, that's, that's the only way I can sort out, like, how else does Ursa abandon Zuko? Yeah, there's really Zuko's dealing with so many traumas. And one of them is the loss of his mother. And then, you know, it was a one two punch loss of his mother. And then, you know, his dad burning his face and kicking him out. <laughs> Cute animal alert. 
All right. There are a number of cute animals in this episode. So we've got our faithful ostrich horse that, I mean, not really faithful because like Zuko straight up stole this ostrich horse a few episodes ago. And it's been faithful to Zuko. To Zuko. Uh, so we got Just that. Just not to song. We have, so I went on a journey trying to understand what was going on on this farm. It's hybrid pigs. Okay, and there are a bunch of different hybrid pigs. There are the so, chicken pig things. So here, here are the list of hybrid pigs. The moosow, which is a cross between a cow and a pig. They produce a special and delicious pig milk favored by the people of rural towns. Also good for meat. Uh, then we have the pickin, which is a pig chicken, which lays a number of different eggs. Very interesting looking animal. Then the pigster is the male counterpart of the pickin and is a cross between a pig and a rooster. The pig deer, cross between a pig and a deer. And then the woolly pig, which is a hybrid of a sheep and a pig. So I'm convinced, and I specifically did not consult the art book because I don't want to be proven wrong. Okay. That they were like, okay, we're going to have a farm. We want to have a hybrid animal, like a pig and some other farm animal. Like, what do you got? Like, you know, they just asked the team, like, what do you got? Everybody come up with something. And everything was so great that they just went with all of it. <laughs> just all of it. Just keep keep the pig and then just throw everything at it. Yep. Uh, apparently, the woolly pig is part sheep, although it also resembles a mangalitsa, a breed of pig, which has a fleece akin to that of sheep. So it looks like a real animal, apparently. I have never heard of this animal before, and I am looking it up now. Images. Oh, yes, that, that does. awkward look- moment when you fantasy hybrid animal a real creature into existence. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of cute. They're kind of cute. All right, feeling it. But we can't talk about cute animals without talking about, you mentioned this, might be the cutest, cutest animal, is the turtle duck. The, I, it's, I, 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 I would die for turtle ducks. I love turtle ducks. We almost named our podcast after the turtle ducks. We did. What was it? Uh, two turtle ducks? Yes. Two turtle ducks. Yeah. And I would have sung a weird little <laughs> intro every time, people. <laughs> They're cute, but I'm kind of glad we didn't go with that. I'm kind of glad we didn't go with that either. <laughs> I really like our name. Only, only if you know. I'm, sh- I'm sure listeners are, you know, fascinated by my little jingles for things sometimes. But I think would have been a little much for me every time. Two turtle ducks, especially like <laughs> book one. We don't see turtle ducks for so long. For so long. So we went with the pie show instead, guys, which I think was a great choice. I, I think so. Um, but yeah, turtle ducks, they're so, so they're cute. so cute. Like, and they're cute from like, sometimes they're like cute baby animals, but they're not cute adult animals. These no, they're are cute all cute the way all through. all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. Cute all the way through. So absolutely love it. And then apparently you caught an animal that I did not see. Yeah, spider snakes. Spider snakes. Where the hell do we see this? So when we first get to the Earth Kingdom village, uh-huh. the soldiers are playing a dice game. Okay. In like, you know, the corner there. Oh my God. And the one guy is rolling dice and he says, come on, spider snake eyes. And he gets double fives and says, yes implying that spider snakes are a thing and they have 10 eyes. Uh, uh, all right. All right. I don't 
All right. Now now you're going to make me look it up on if this is like a thing thing. This Instead is totally of, a thing. Like like you making up, you know, like character this, vaguely mentions something that sounds like an animal. It must be. Or like the, what was it? You tried to get me the lemu you tried to say was an yeah, actual okay. animal. Spider snake eyes. Come on. I don't know. Spider snakes. Let's see if spider snake you i told you you spider snakes are a thing they have 10 eyes you are correct colton i i'm sorry once more you were right and i was wrong okay now you have it on a recording to be able to play back whenever you're feeling low colton was correct that's all i wanted to hear (laughs) son of a Mm, mm, yep (laughs) Ten-eyed chimerical creature known to inhabit the Earth Kingdom and gambling, rolling two fives on a pair of dice, is known as spider snake eyes. You did not want to know that. Nope. No, I did not. They're going to haunt your dreams. You haven't even seen a picture. It's going to haunt your dreams. I'll draw you a picture. (laughs) So, like, is it a snake with far too many eyes and far too many legs, or is it just a really long spider? I I don't know. I don't want to know, but I wonder. Oh my god, that was a good catch, Colton. That was a good catch. Captions, it'll get you. It'll get you. I still say my number one animal this week is the turtle deck. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Despite the fact that, you know, I was right. <laughs> the spider snake got you words that you've never heard before from me. <laughs> I'm going to make that my ringtone when you call me. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, please no. <laughs> No, I knew when I said it, I'm like, oh, he has this recorded forever and he can just play it whenever he needs to. But one day, one day you will say it to me. I already have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have. I've heard it a lot. (laughs) On the show. It's a Zuko hair alert. Zuko hair alert. Is that really the jingle we're going with? No, I said I was going to make up a new one every time because every time we see Zuko, there's a new Zuko hair. No, I know. But like, is that the jingle we're going with this time? I hope so. I liked it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Yeah. New hair. This is on his whole head. Yeah. I want to say this is a very good look. Like a very good look. It's not my favorite Zuko hair look. It's not your favorite? No, it's not. You like the swishy, don't you? I, I I like, yeah. Like the beaver hair. <laughs> I, I don't think of it as beaver hair, okay? Mm-hmm. I think of it as like the emo kid hair. Mm, okay. It's different. Okay. It's a, you know, it, it's not quite so swoopy. It's more just like down in the face. Mm, I think this is a good one for him. I like this length. I like, I like what it brings to him. It's kind of a fresh start. Well, yeah. It's not in any direction one way or another. So I like it. It's it's neutral. It doesn't know what it wants to be. Yes, exactly. There's so many options. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm I, I love this hair journey. I have a question for you. We learn in this episode that Iroh was actually the heir to the throne originally. Mm, yes. We've we've dealt with some heavy topics in this episode, and we've been very serious this entire time. But I need to know, what do you think the world would have looked like if Iroh had inherited the throne? I think it depends on what point uh, in his life he inherits the throne. Is it after the loss of Luten, if he still, if he was still in line, if if you know whatever happened with Azulon and Ozai didn't happen? 
Let's say whatever happened with Ozai and Azulon didn't happen. Bossing say happens as as it did. There is the loss of Lu Ten. Iroh comes back a broken man, and whatever happens didn't happen, and Azulon passes, you know, naturally on his own sleep. terms. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it just passes to Iroh. And that's like the only thing we're changing in this situation. I think this war de-escalates. I don't think he moves troops out of where they've already kind of colonized over the past hundred years. Um, but I think there's not as much pressure to move forward, if that makes sense. There's no reconquering Bossing Say. There's no second attempt at Bossing Say. There are lessons that Iroh learns at Bossing Say that change him, you know, that include the loss of his son and probably the loss of a lot of life at Bossing Say because it's such a huge battle that I see him de-escalating the situation that we're in and giving the world kind of space to breathe and recalibrate. Which is interesting because if he's not escalating things, that means the Southern Water Tribe sticks around. Mm -hmm. Do you think Aang wakes up? Yeah, yeah. I think someone was coming across him. I th I think, I mean, I also believe that Katara and Aang are intrinsically linked, uh, that there is that destiny that one way or another, if she was training with her mother out on the water that day, she would get angry at her mom and crack the iceberg. No, she would have said, let me try something. Try really hard, crack the iceberg. There would have been something that led to that, led to them starting their journey. I still think there would have been uh, more world left to recalibrate and more balance needed. But I think with Iroh in charge, that balance would be more achievable. Aang comes out of the iceberg with Katara. Uh, he says, what happened? Actually, the airbenders would still be there, wouldn't they? No, no, they wouldn't. Because that was, that was Sozin. But I, but, um... Anne comes out of the iceberg, says, what happened? Katara can tell him what happened. And I think Katara's the type of person who would have offered to go with Aang. She would have jumped at the chance to be like, let, you know, um, my mom has been showing me some cool things. Mom, meet this guy. You know, let's let's teach him how to waterbend. He wouldn't have had to go to the North Pole. He would have been able to learn at the South Pole. Sokka, too, honestly, probably would have gone with them because he wouldn't have felt any anguish about leaving because... Everyone else would be there. Like, all the men would be there to protect the village from mm -hmm. the non-existent threat. There wouldn't even be a need to protect. Okay, this might come across as a cop-out, but I think if Iroh had inherited the throne, the Fire Nation would have fractured. Ooh. Because okay. I think Ozai would have tried to lead an uprising. Or, I mean, because, like, if all were changing. Oh, yeah, I didn't factor on Ozai. You're right. I... Ozai would have taken him out. You're absolutely right. No, I, I see, that's the thing. I don't think Ozai would have necessarily taken out Iroh like subversively. Mm -hmm. And you no, know, no, he may, he may have, but I, I think that doesn't speak to like the spirit of the hypothetical. Yeah, I was just, I, I, I don't know. I didn't even factor in Ozai. I was like, all right, <laughs> Iroh, Iroh takes over. Okay, you know. Um, in your mind, Iroh could only take over if Ozai weren't there. Yes, actually. Yeah, no, genuinely. Um, I think also the actual title and the fact that the responsibility of keeping the world safe, keeping his nation safe, 
Iroh would have the ability to put Ozai in his place and feel more of the responsibility to put Ozai in his place. I think Ozai would have tried to take out Iroh somewhat subversively, but since that is less fun to imagine, that like things basically would have been the same. Um, I'm going to say that I think Ozai would have attempted a coup that fractured the Fire Nation, and he would have ended up either on some of the outer islands or on in the colony somewhere trying to keep the war going and rekindle the fight, maybe with Zhao as his right hand. Yeah, definitely Azula. Oh, yeah. And I, I think the question for me in that hypothetical is also just, would that, I mean, I guess that younger version of Zuko maybe would have Ursa around and he would just end up wherever she is, whether or not she goes with Ozai, which you probably have a better handle on than I do because you've read the comics, but I can't speak to that. I don't know. Fun to think about. Fun to think about. The World by Iroh. Can we talk about the dagger for a second? Did you recognize it? Yeah, it's the dagger they cut their hair with. Yes, it is. Made in the Earth Kingdom. I love that joke. That is such a good joke. Like, everything's been super serious. And he's like, it's like, read the inscription. Made in Earth Kingdom. No, the other side. (laughs) Also that, like, we never really noticed the other side. Like, that, that other, that Made in Earth Kingdom thing probably wasn't as important to Zuko because Zuko's been, you know, Fire Nation best. Except the fact that Zuko is making himself in the Earth Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the other side of it, which I mentioned during the episode where they cut their hair. What does it say again? Never give up without a fight. Never give up without a fight. Which, really interesting because Ursa's the one who says, you know, you're someone who keeps fighting even though it's hard. Ursa and Iroh are the same thing to Zuko. And then uh, it's interesting because the wiki actually brings up a third quote that ties into this, which is actually said in the recap, Siege of the North Part 2, I've always had to struggle and fight. And that's what made me, that's made me strong. It's made me who I am. Ow. So I really love uh, the passing of this dagger over to the kid and how the passing of the dagger over to the kid actually brings him to his final battle because it gives the kid something to, you know, try and stand up with and keep fighting. So when Zuko gives the dagger to Lee, what do you think he's doing there? I think he's giving it to his younger self to protect himself because he knows the world is cruel, bad things are going to happen, and you are the one who now needs to take care of your family. Hmm, That's interesting. Why? What do you think? I think he might be trying to still at that moment leave Iroh behind. Mm, I think he's becoming Iroh more. Well, that's the irony of the situation. Okay. He's, and I, I think that's, you know. Trying to give away a piece of his identity, but becomes more of himself in doing so type of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's <laughs> he got into this situation by walking away from Iroh, going out on his own. But he's still carrying this bit of Iroh with him. This gift that was given to him by Iroh that he used in a moment of of closeness with his uncle that like the the dagger and iroh in zuko's mind at this point are intrinsically linked i think and i think that giving the dagger to lee is is you know yeah this kid he's kind of cute and i feel this weird attachment to him for some reason i don't completely hate his guts like most other humans 
that I come across. And, you know, he thinks this little knife is cool. So, yeah, here, take it. But, like, you know, that's all the surface level. But I think underneath, he's continuing to push Iroh away. Mm. Okay. I didn't see that. But I think that's interesting that you saw that. And like you said, I think it's really interesting that giving the dagger away is one of the most Iroh things that he could do in that moment. It was literally a gift from Iroh. Yeah, like he's flat out reliving Iroh's experiences. Well, it's after it's after he has a moment and teaches him how to use the broadswords and gives him a lesson in fighting, you know? So, and I mean, he's not going to hand over the broadswords to the small child. So here's the thing that you can use to protect yourself, this dagger. That's what and- I saw it as backing up that lesson in fighting which is far less stand like this swing like that and far more here's the underlying concept behind what you're doing you're you're fighting wrong not because you're making the wrong motions you're fighting wrong because you're thinking about things wrong literally the most like the first thing we see iroh do with him it's very interesting to see him adopt that teaching style And I think that's going to be really important in future episodes. And I think that's really, really the heart of not only this episode, but Zuko's journey in season two. He has all of these things around him and all these people and ideas and, you know, stuff he's been told. And at the end, you know, where he starts is I don't think that far from where he ends up. But the significant difference is that he has to walk away from everything so that he can come back to it on his own terms, so that he can make that conscious decision about what he wants and who he is. And it's exactly where he was when he started, but when he started, it wasn't an active decision he was making. It was a situation he was falling into. It was passive. And I think it's so important to acknowledge that all things being equal, making the decision is so much better and more fulfilling than having the decision made for you. Thank you for listening to The Zuko Show. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash 27. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at The Pie Show or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. Fulton, I love what Zuko alone kind of sets up for the whole Avatar world, which is we then in Korra get Korra alone. And even in the comics, we're going to get Suki alone. And it's really interesting to see the character outside of the team Avatar, that it's just this one character having to face a whole cruel world by themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think... Whenever you have a big ensemble cast, the the things that I really love are when you have unusual pairings or separation. Yes. Putting characters together that normally don't go together and, and getting them into this crucible of plot and forcing them to figure a way to work together. Beautiful. Gold. Love it. <laughs> I'm thinking Cave of Two Lovers with Sokka and the Hippies, but also most of book three. That's what book three That's is. That's what book three like, is. The whole arc of everybody has their fun field adventure with Zuko. Zuko. <laughs> I want to field trip with Zuko. But yeah, the, you know, the other side of that coin, I think, is like, we're going to take 
one character from the group and just isolate them. Mm-hmm. And it's a true isolation. I mean, there are, Zuko is the only major character appearing in this episode, and you know we get we'll we'll get that with Korra, and I'm so excited to see that with Suki. There is also another reference uh, in here that I want to talk about now. I know we'll we'll eventually get there, but it's going to be so long until we see it again. Which is Zuko passes through this area um, on his journey. The battlefield with the, the giant coins. Yes, with the giant coins. Such a cool setting. Which, uh, for those of you who watch Korra, um, Avatar 1, the first Avatar, loses his life in that battlefield and, you know, is the first person in the Avatar cycle. And it starts right there. And uh, that's where Zuko passes through on his journey to find out who he is and his identity. That, uh, yeah, that's some context. Yeah, that's some context, which we don't even get until, like... I don't know what what season of Korra, my God. Two. Two. Yeah. Best so season of Korra. That was something that, you know, it's interesting to see the creators really build in layers of context years later for an episode that, again, has only one major character in it. That's how important this episode was to them and is to the series as a whole. I have larger thoughts on like some of the uh how to how to make a sequel series to a franchise from years earlier kind of thing that we can talk about more when we get to Korra because I think it's just so brilliantly done. Yes. Um, totally not going to draw just mind numbing parallels to the the Star Wars sequel trilogy? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> but uh, I want to on your you know characters alone thing. I'm I was thinking about some of the other members of Team Avatar and when they get their solo stories or their isolation stories, and I have thoughts, but I feel like we kind of already dealt with Aang's isolation story in season one, and I'm not sure if his you know isolation story is more the his events in the spirit world because mm, he is the only one who can go there type of thing or the blue spirit mm, yeah i think he has more than one though because i would very much see his his whole day on the lion turtle just calling up past lives yeah the desperate phone of, call for help yeah kind of the kind of the big one for me but um and i can see i know tops mm-hmm. and i know sokka's what would you say katara's is because i'm trying to think of one probably bloodbending oh yeah no i no, I mean that's yeah they're that's, there and they know what's going on i yeah. think the closest i can think of is painted lady but listeners if you're listening this far into the episode <laughs> please please reach out to me any which way email us tweet us DM me on Instagram. So I'm going to make the argument now, mm-hmm. and I might be wrong because I've only seen it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can dig into it more when we get there. That the bloodbending storyline, Katara is not physically isolated, but she is cut off in a way from the rest of the group because she's dealing with things that she feels like they can't understand. Mm. And she's cutting herself off. Okay, we'll see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep an eye on that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a note right now for when we get there to let's look for that. And I might double back on it entirely, but just in case I don't, I'd like you to look for it when we get there. Okay, I will do so. I makes me want to just scroll through the episode names and just kind of <laughs> see what jots, like what jogs my memory of like what I think is it. The closest I'm getting is Painted Lady. Scroll through the episodes and we'll deal with that and follow up next week. Gotcha. I'll do that. 